Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. So, uh, previously on uh, Archaeology in the Prehistoric World, uh, we were talking about the ancient Maya um, and their uh, concept of the cosmos as a way to describe uh, boundaries uh, between different um, metaphysical spaces, right? The real, the real world that we inhabit and the one where the deities live, which sometimes are the same thing, and you can interact with deities. Um, religion also focuses on um, the presence of a deity, which may be either physically present, like there may be a physical uh, deity or god or whatever um, present in this world, or it may just be conceptual, um, the idea or the spirit of a deity. Um, sometimes symbols such as this uh, lovely uh, individual uh, is a deity, and sometimes it is a concept of a deity. So this is a, uh, I want to say Shipe Totec. I think that's the name. Uh, it's Aztec, so it's not my strong language. But um, basically, so you see how this guy is kind of wearing a mask and skin, like a suit, and he has like extra hands? It's basically because uh, he has flayed the skin off of another person and gotten into it like a giant skin suit. Uh, I don't know, maybe that's where Hannibal Lecter got the idea. Uh, but he is impersonating a god um, by wearing the skin of another. Um, and so uh, for the Aztecs or also for the Inca, for example, they would t pick a person to represent the god on Earth. And what do you, how do you treat a god, well, you treat them very well. So the Inca, for example, for a whole year, the person who was elected or volunteered uh, to be the representative of this god on earth would get parties. They'd be invited out every day for like eating at different people's houses. They'd be giving gifts and lavish you know, um, events and things like that. They would be fated the whole year. And then at the end of the year, uh, of course, they would be sacrificed. Um, thus accruing all that social capital to the, the deity rather than that person. So it was like, if you want to go out, you know, that's, that's how you're going to do it. Um, you know, you could think of maybe if they had sitcoms in, ancient, in the ancient Inca Empire, this would be what Walter White would have done instead of uh, selling meth in Breaking Bad. Maybe he would have volunteered to be the representative of a deity with his terminal cancer. Uh, there you can see how he tied the skin suit on in the back, which is pretty pretty awesome. Um, so this is the symbolic presence of a deity. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to have an actual physical thing right there. Um, although it is common to have people take part in their religion, it wasn't always necessary. Um, for most of our own cultural backgrounds in America, there is some sort of cultural, there is some sort of participatory aspect of religion. You have to do something, go somewhere, say something, or be something to uh, participate in the religion. Um, but that's not always the case. For example, in ancient Egypt, it was possible that, or likely, that people on the day-to-day -day level didn't like go to a service or didn't 
really do much on the day-to-day -day basis um, for religious uh, practice. They would, if they had something specific they had to ask a god to do or about, they would go to the temple, um, they would write it out or tell the priest, and the priest would take care of it, and they didn't have to do anything other than tell the priest, well, and of course, you know, give him a little something for his trouble, or her a little something for her trouble, depending on the, the uh, god, and if it was a priest or a priestess. Um, but for the most part, there are participation rituals in most um, religions, and we can often see them archaeologically, uh, from home shrines uh, to body modification to, I mean, the, the list is endless. Um, sometimes it is not as uh, evident, though, because it's food or drinks at festivals, and if they don't break a lot of pottery, we don't really see it. Um, and we don't really see the food being consumed. Although sometimes we'll see different cuts of deer and festivals make bigger piles of trash. If you've ever hosted a party at your house, you know that the next day you have a lot of trash. Sometimes uh, we can see it through participation through art. Um, this, uh, shall we say, uh, very, um, what's the best word to describe this guy? Uh, adventurous individual is uh, making a blood sacrifice to the deities. Um, and we wouldn't see this archaeologically because the only thing we would see is this stingray spine, which is what this is. If you've ever swum with stingrays, they tell you, beware of the spine. It's got like a stinger. Um, and so the Maya would use this as a very jagged, it's basically shaped, I'm going to exaggerate the size, but it's like this with barbs on the side. Actual size is about like a letter opener, so it's like that. They're sharp and painful and woah. And this uh, young man is using it to pierce his uh, probably foreskin or maybe more uh, meaty parts of his genitalia uh, to let blood out. Um, and that blood then is sacrificial. And you might say, um, why not prick your finger? <laughs> Why would you do that in such a sensitive area of your body? One reason might be um, that if you see um, a ruler's job as um, continuing the line of succession, obviously uh, his genitalia would be a very important part of his job uh, to be able to pass on uh, his uh, line and create the next, uh, the next heir. And so by letting blood from his penis, he is therefore uh, sacrificing blood from a very important and vital part of his body, which is much more important than just pricking your fingers. However, if you're a scribe, perhaps letting blood from your fingertips would be more of a, a sacrifice than, say, uh, this. Uh, please don't try this at home. Um, OK. Um, and again, here's a. Uh, so this is Leonardo da Vinci's image of the Last Supper. Sorry, no blood being let from genitals that we can see in this image. Sorry. Um, and uh, perhaps uh, this was, although you know, uh, Leonardo da Vinci lived uh, a thousand years later, uh, we don't know exactly what the Last Supper looked like. Uh, but it's likely that if we took a look at this scene, there are some things that would exist archaeologically. We would probably find some of this looks like metal. Um, uh, metal dishes, the buildings certainly, but the table, the linens, the people, 
um, are likely to have not left any trace in the archaeological record whether or not their uh, bodies remained on Earth or not, not for us to say. Um, similarly, we would see, um, you know, we would see some evidence of things like communion um, and other religious rituals, but again, not, not a whole lot. Um, sorry, got stung by another bee, so I'm itching still. Um, it got in my bee suit. It had a hole in the armpit and stung me. I'm having lots of fun with my bees. Okay. Um, so understanding religious beliefs is very difficult and complicated for archaeologists because if we're looking for things, correlates, right, pieces of actual physical evidence in the archaeological record for focus attention, boundaries, presence of a deity, or you know, uh, things you actually do on the day-to-day, -day, we're going to be biased towards items that survive in the record. Um, for example, uh, prayer books, or things you say, or rituals that you carry out and actually you physically do things that don't really have props um, or artifacts. We're, we're almost never going to see them unless they're depicted in art or written down somehow. We have to be really careful not to reconstruct or um, use our own belief systems or even present current belief systems to project them back on the ancient world uh, because you know, they lived at a very different time in a very different cultural context. So you have to be pretty careful. It can be very difficult. Uh, okay. So art, uh, we could define art as an artificial representation of an idea. So we're shifting gears to art now. Uh, artificial representation of an idea often with a representative depiction. And I've kind of covered art already a little bit. I just want to give you this, um, uh, this definition. Artificial representation of an idea, often a representative depiction. So, you know, some things are, I don't know, maybe not self-explanatory, but fairly straightforward. Uh, this appears to be an individual giving birth, or at least some sort of birth analog. Um, and I say that for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, it's kind of hard to see, but she's wearing a, it's called a menstruation fringe or skirt. Um, and it was common in the American Southwest that when menstruating, a um, woman would wear like a fringed thing around her hips. Um, and I know this is also a woman because we have, if you check out her Princess Leia style, uh, buns here. This is absolutely a uh, feminine hairstyle uh, among people in the Southwest. And it's really loud outside. Um, it's, it's really, usually we have to be really careful uh, using modern people, or at least modern enough to have photographs taken, to um, go back in time and say, oh yeah, this is certainly a person. But the prevalence of this hairstyle in the depictions makes us uh, pretty sure that it is a non-individualistic way to represent woman. Just the same as this marker is out of ink. Um, just the same as we have the international uh, bathroom symbol with the skirted lady. Not all, you don't have to be wearing a skirt to go in the bathroom. You can be wearing pants. 
So obviously this is just a generic representation of, um, of uh, you know, the women's room uh, versus men, uh, even though pants and skirt are not really the best. It's not the 1950s anymore, so it's not really the best way to determine uh, the gender of a person by looking at whether they're wearing pants or skirts. Um, it's likely that this may have been a generic sort of marker, even if the woman didn't hair, wear her hair that, wear, that way, which she probably did anyway. Um, it's, a, it, it's a marker just to say, hey, this is a woman. And if you're not sure, she's wearing a menstruation skirt. So yeah, definitely a woman. So that makes the um, birth likely. Uh, do, do, do. Uh, ba, ba, ba. Sometimes when a culture puts an extra emphasis on something in artwork, um, it can tell you something about what that culture values. And this is especially <clears throat> the most common uh, example of this is depiction of women because I don't want to get into the complex gendered whatever. But um, if you look at any magazine today that pictures a uh, man or a woman model, uh, usually they will have especially emphasized certain parts of their body, uh, men and women, uh, to more of an extent in our culture, women, um, because that's how our culture has developed. But uh, for example here, you might see the exaggerated hips. Um, here uh, you see a specific type of clothing that's worn, and that indicates what is a woman, not necessarily a particular body part. Um, here there is a tribe that has a like a bustle on the back uh, to exaggerate the uh, buttocks, make them appear larger because again um, in societies where food is scarcer, um, being a larger person is a sign of wealth, right? Um, and so exaggerating those um, more corpulent sorts of body shapes with your clothing uh, would be a way to show how fancy you are. Um, so the emphasis on different parts of the body or different types of clothing or different things that are quintessentially male or female, or excuse me, man or woman, um, or young or old, or whatever category they're trying to depict, uh, can tell us a little bit about how the society values or views that individual. Um, there is a bit of a difference between sculpture um, and pictures. Sculptures are three-dimension. Um, they may be portable, they may be not. Um, they might be representative, they might be not. Might be lifelike, might not be. Um, so these are obviously all fairly modern. Um, the lifelike, for archaeologists, the lifelike ones, they give us a view into how people viewed each other uh, when they're trying to be realistic. There's obviously differences. Like if we look up, um, should have had this on here. So even when we're trying to be hyper-realistic, unless you're like being a photorealist, um, so if we look at like Japanese drawings of Europeans, it's a it's very different from the way that we would draw uh, we someone from a European background, or European drawings of themselves of the same time. This is obviously heavily influenced by uh, how the Japanese artist is used to drawing male and female forms and also clothing. And they kind of latch on to small details of clothing, 
or facial features or hair or whatever, and they exaggerate them. Like, I, I don't know if the, who's the, what's it, the, the handle of the umbrella was exactly like that. That sword looks a lot more katana-like. It was probably a one-handled sword, but because Japanese swords are two-handed, two they exaggerated the length, right? So there's a, a cultural lens through which, even when they're trying to be realistic, um, they emphasize certain things that um, different cultures might not. And therefore, that tells us a little bit more about um, that, that contrast can tell you a little bit more about uh, how they view things. Because there's, the, there's a great debate in anthropology. Do we all see things the same way? I mean, physically, like not only colors um, and shapes and, and things like that, but um, do the words that we use influence how we think about them? Right? If you live in a culture that does, ha does not have a past tense, how do you think about the past, right? That might change your view of the world if you have no past tense, right? There's a debate in archaeology whether or not that's important. Similarly, I mentioned colors. For example, uh, some cultures don't differentiate between blue and green. And they've done this test where they go out with nine uh, sheet of paper with nine squares on it. And all of them are green except one. which is blue. And I'm not even exaggerating, like not even like close to green. I mean like blue. And they'll say, which one of these is different? And the people will look at it, and they'll, that languages that don't differentiate between blue and green, and they'll be like, they're all the same. And like for us, it's like, what? That's blue, you know? Uh, because we differentiate between blue and green. And so there's been some hypothesizing that, um, because your brain interprets no difference between those, green and green, green and green, it actually, just like if your house smells, you start to ignore it after a while. Like you don't smell it anymore, and other people come over and they're like, what's that smell? Um, they ignore their brain, tone, tunes out that blueness. And it looks, it looks green to them because they've been told, they've been telling their brain over and over, eh, no, no real discernible distinction necessary, so don't bother discriminating between them, which is really interesting. Um, and so similarly with, with art, people have been, artists especially, focus on certain things, facial features, etc. Um, and it can tell us something about how that society views things. Um, yeah, which is kind of fun. Okay, anyway. Boop, boop, boop. Um, and then the other, uh, more, when you have more abstract art, A, it's a little more difficult to interpret because abstract art is sometimes interpreted in the eye of the beholder. So it can be a bit of that Rorschach test um, thing that I talked about before. Uh, but it can also give you a window um, into what's it. Uh, to what they're thinking a little bit. Pictures, of course, are two-dimensional on a flat surface. And what's uh, particularly interesting for us is um, using two dimensions to show three dimensions, because we exist in a three-dimensional world. We have depth perception. And so sometimes you see something like this, and you're thinking, are they trying to show, are they practicing drawing uh, whatever this animal is? Are they, it looks kind of like a mountain lion or something. Uh, are they practicing 
um, perspective. What are they doing here, right? So that's kind of a fun thing to think about. Uh, and finally, boop, boop, boop. When we get into a slightly more modern age, we can all um, quickly discern, because we live in this culture, discern different, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> different styles. Like this is a very classic uh, Soviet or um, um, 1900s uh, communist style propaganda uh, image with the very uh, like high modernist sort of uh, feel to it. Um, and as members of this culture, we can see that and recognize it. However, um, if you're not from this culture, that might not carry. It might just be like, oh, it's five people carrying a flag. That's weird, right? Um, just like if I show you this and I don't give you any cultural context, you might say, I don't know, does anyone have a guess where this is from? Egypt? Uh, any idea on the interpretation? I mean, we got, <laughs> I mean, we got one guy here holding a, I don't know, I imagine a wooden spoon, and he's about to spoon feed this guy some, uh, I don't know what, right? Yeah, some bird stuff, some birds to feed. Uh, and then we have these guys swimming underneath the ice. They're trapped under the ice. Uh, the new season of Fargo started, so I'm thinking about, um, about that, right? So, I mean, without that cultural, like, this might be very clear to someone of Egyptian, uh, you know, from ancient Egypt. They'd be like, oh, yeah, this is a really old style. This is actually the Narmer palette, which we're going to meet now in a few minutes, actually. Uh, this, this animal? It's probably, it's probably a giraffe. Probably. That's actually an inside. So the nominal point of this Narmer palette is that it is a, what do you call it? It holds um, like rouge or uh, eye powder. It's a compact, right? It has a little disc of that powder stuff that you put on your face. I don't wear, I don't wear, I don't, my wife doesn't, I don't know anyone that. Yeah, compact. So that would hold pigment, maybe um, charcoal, or maybe ochre, or maybe whatever other, arsenic, or all kinds of things were used. Um, and that would be held in there. And this whole thing, which depicts the uh, unification of nor uh, Upper and Lower Egypt under the first pharaoh, is just like a little rouge. Yeah, so it's super fancy. Super fancy makeup container. Probably not something you'd carry around in your purse, not that a pharaoh or his wife would have to carry a purse. Okay. And obviously, the main reason art is wonderful and beautiful and, and makes, uh, makes life more interesting to live, but as archaeologists, we're mostly, the main takeaway, please, is art is uh, related to thought. <clears throat> and if we want to understand the thought of ancient people, art is one way to do that, but we have to do it very carefully. Okay. Now... We shall move to Egypt. Boop doo. There we go. Boop, boop, boop. So we are going to go through, as usual. Um, we'll start with the region and environment. We'll go through the history, which is kind of the bulk of ancient Egypt. We'll talk about how they did their agriculture, 
their trade relationships. We'll talk briefly about natural disasters. And then finally, I'll spend a bit more time on their society, because right now we've been talking about the different forms that society takes and how we look at them archaeologically. So we're going to talk about Egyptian society and how it functioned. And then finally, we'll discuss their collapse, or better said, their series of collapses, because there were three. And I'm going to argue that they happened for similar reasons. Um, Egypt. There we go. All right, so, oh, ecological zones. Um, that should say ecological zones. Um, so ancient Egypt is kind of an unusual one. If you think about the Maya area, it's kind of square. Rome is this big amorphous blob. Uh, Mesopotamia is kind of poorly defined borders. Uh, Egypt, especially the populated part of Egypt, is really clearly delineated by green on this satellite image. So it is basically a 20 mile or so wide strip along the Nile that goes for about 600 miles. Or excuse me, it's like 12 miles, 20 kilometers wide. It's, uh, it's wider in some areas and thinner in others, so it's not really fair to say that. But it's about 1,000 kilometers long or 600 miles long and very narrow for most of it, except for the marsh at the very end. Um, so very thinly defined and really homogenous region. Um, we could talk about three zones. Um, so we have Upper Egypt. Upper Egypt is probably what you think of when you think of ancient Egypt. There's cities, towns, pyramids, um, palaces, uh, other tombs built into the walls, things like that. And they're all very near the Nile, within a few miles of the Nile. And people uh, travel by boat, they travel by donkey, they uh, live near uh, lush fields and gardens, they live in villages uh, out of mud brick, and they all live near the Nile. That's Upper Egypt. And don't be confused that Upper Egypt is the southern part on our maps. So even though it says Upper Egypt, it's this part. And Lower Egypt is the north part. And that's because if you think about it, Upper Egypt is higher. Lower Egypt is lower. So it flows, the river flows down. From their point of view, if you look upriver, that's Upper Egypt. And if you look downriver, that's Lower Egypt. Lower Egypt basically starts around Cairo, uh, or ancient Memphis, one of the capitals at one time. And then it spreads out into what's known as the Egyptian Marsh which is a completely different ecosystem. Um, all the silt and nutrients left over from the Nile that didn't get brought out into the fields kind of just splay out. And this area has grown uh, since ancient times as more silt is deposited. And there is where people would grow uh, papyrus reeds and make paper. They would have different sorts of fish and food available to them, so it was a completely different ecosystem. And then the third zone, so we have lower, excuse me, upper Egypt, lower Egypt, and then we have deserts. The western desert is really the edge of the Sahara Desert, right? Sahara goes this way. So it is, you know, if you've ever seen Lawrence of Arabia and you see him walking across the endless desert, um, that's actually the eastern desert, but it looks like it's, it's a desert, it's a classical desert, exactly what you're imagining in your, you know, kind of prototypical desert. Um, 
the western desert goes quite far. The eastern desert hits the Red Sea and connects it to Mesopotamia and its other, it's actually much smaller. And uh, the deserts are largely empty except for um, they had a series of trading posts up and down the, out, the exterior, so you could go overland. Uh, the important resources out there were minerals and metals. So they had mines, um, especially for silver. Silver was abundant, gold, excuse me, gold was abundant, silver was not. So silver was more important. Um, if we look at the climate of ancient Egypt, um, it is extremely dry, number one. Um, so if, here is an annual precipitation map. This is a ridiculous uh, uh, lack of rain. So if it's white, it gets less than 10 millimeters of rain a year. So that's like, I don't know, two-fifths of an inch. It's nothing. So two-fifths of an inch, that much rain each year on average. And then, not even that. Right? And then uh, even the wettest part is only, you know, the wettest part is 75 to 100 millimeters of rain. So that's up to four inches of rain. Oop, 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 there's four inches. So that's the maximum amount of rain in Egypt. Really unusual, really unusual. Um, and that's why they were able to build, I'll talk about mud brick buildings. They were able to make mud brick buildings because it didn't rain very often, and so you could make them out of mud, um, dried mud bricks without having any problems of erosion. Um, <coughs> they did, though, take advantage of, if you remember back to the environmental chapter where we talked about the intertropical convergence zone, basically, the band of moisture that causes the monsoons in India. Um, if you go back for one second to this map, down here is where that intertropical convergence band runs, a little south of here. And it drops tons of rain on uh, Ethiopia and Nubia and places like that. And that water runs downhill into the Nile, stripping the land down there of nutrients and silt and bringing them to Egypt. So even though it is not in the monsoon zone, it benefits from that monsoon zone. Um, the flood is kind of the lifeblood of Egypt. Um, it begins to rise in uh, July. It reaches its maximum in August, and then subsides in September. Or it used to, until the 1950s, when they built the Aswan Dam, and now it is a continual stream of water, which had some interesting ramifications. The idea of building the Aswan Dam was hey, now we're going to have a predictable Nile. We're not going to have to deal with the floods that are too big or too small, either of which could cause disaster. We are going to have steady water all year round. And everyone thought, hooray, this is a great idea. Except um, the annual cycle did more than just run the agricultural cycle. It was really important for the local ecology. Uh, when you think of going outside in August or September here in Wisconsin, what is the most annoying thing? Mosquitoes. Imagine never having winter and just having wet weather continually for years. Imagine how fun the mosquitoes when we don't have that freeze. You know, that's the best part, like the first freeze of the winter or the fall, and then you go outside and there's no mosquitoes. Oh, awesome. Never happens? That sucks. Similar thing happens in Egypt, but not necessarily with mosquitoes. Uh, it's actually a lot worse. There's a, um, a uh, parasite that basically gets into your body because you swallow it through water, and then it makes a whole bunch of eggs in your bladder, 
and then you urinate them out. And so if you urinate them back into water, that ends up being drunk by someone else, it's, and it's really nasty. And it used to peak during the peak Nile because there was a lot more water around, everything was flooded, and then it would subside. And so there was an annual cycle. But because they have kept the water high for 50 years now, it is a huge problem uh, throughout Egypt, even today. So hooray, you know, unintended consequences. Um, the environment is, so you have to remember, it's a very concentrated population. They've been living in the same place for 5,000 years. So this is a very um, human-modified environment. And that means, uh, in this case, they cut down most of the forest, not that there were a lot of forests to begin with. Um, they hunted out a lot of the animals that were fun to hunt. Um, and then they um, basically turned everything into farmland. So it's a very human-ordered uh, environment. To do large building projects, they have to import wood from places like Cyprus. And I use the present tense there, but I should have used the past tense. Now they import it from wherever they want. Um, so very human-regulated environment. Okay, so the chronology. You can think of it as three uh, periods of stasis and power. The Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, and the New Kingdom. In between each one of those is what's called an intermediate period. And the intermediate period is a time of upheaval, collapse, political chaos, um, which is not preferred by Egyptians. Egyptians really like the status, ancient Egyptians really prefer the status quo. Society continuing to function as it is functioning. Interestingly, we have what? Almost, uh, almost 500 years there, almost 500 years there, almost 500 years there. They seem to go in pretty nifty cycles of, they last, each one lasts for about 500 years, give or take, um, but before they break down into a bit of destruction for about 100 years. Um, and then after the New Kingdom, we get into the Mediterranean period, which is just kind of a way for me to lump together things like the late period, the Macedonian, Ptolemaic, and Roman periods, which correspond to Egyptian, Greek, a uh, different kind of Greek, and uh, Roman influence and sometimes rulership of ancient Egypt. So we'll go through these uh, individually. Starting with the early dynastic period, from uh, 3100 to 2575. Uh, now, those dates are recorded very exactly in the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics because they were already writing at this time period. And instead of like writing about like Farmer John sold three sheep to Farmer Tom for four bags of wheat, they were writing things like our king. Uh, smote so and so, and you know, built this building, and like they were keeping records of their um, of their state. They had a state bureaucracy, and they wrote about it, which is awesome because it's I'm trying to think if we know about as much about any other ancient society. Not to mention, it was really near Europe, and it was one of the first ancient languages to be deciphered. So we know a lot, a lot, a lot about Egypt. Um, now, ancient Egypt. Uh, had been two ununified kingdoms, one of Upper Egypt and one of Lower Egypt, and they were 
Um, and they were unified under Narmer, supposedly. N-A-R-M-E-R, -E if you're looking for baby names, I suggest Narmer, that's a good one. Um, it's debated whether or not Narmer is a real person or a mythical uh, founder. Uh, but certainly the iconography here may not be super obvious, but um, so this represents the delta. As you can see, it kind of looks like the delta, right? It has the different heads of the Nile going out. Um, and here we have uh, the symbol, this, um, this hawk uh, symbol uh, of, I believe, Upper Egypt sticking something in the nose of it. Here we have Narmer with the uh, what do you call it? the thr not thrown the uh, crown of uh, of Upper Egypt, and he's smiting the ruler of Lower Egypt. And then see here, this crown when they put them together, that is the crown of unified Upper and Lower Egypt. So it's um, in later depictions you see like the crown as this with the with the big tall hat together, so showing that they're unified, which is kind of neat. Um, and uh, what do you call it? Um, giraffes are representations of the southern or upper Egypt because they come from even farther south. They import them. So uh, yeah, lots going on here, a lot of iconography. Whether or not this person actually existed, does it matter? I don't know. Uh, I don't think it, I would say it doesn't matter. Obviously, we know that Egypt became unified, and this is an image showing or depicting or commemorating that unification, whether or not it was fictional or not. It uh, doesn't matter because they were it happened later. Um, one of the interesting things about the early dynastic period, so we're talking 5,000 years ago, we already see the hallmarks or the most important facets of Egyptian um, state existence. We, a lot of times you think like the early Mesopotamians or the early Maya, they're just kind of like the, the beginnings of the interesting things that these cultures are going to become, right? They're getting bigger and bigger over time. In Egypt, they had things that the pyramids, pyramids come from early on, like 2600 BCE is the first pyramid, um, uh, Dozier's Step Pyramid, uh, this one here. And it kind of comes out. So pyramids start out. At first, they were making like just these rectangular, here's the ground. Tombs were these rectangular things, as you can see here with, you know, chambers beneath them, and that's where you get buried. Well, then Dozier was like, oh, I'm going to be awesome and put another one on there. Well, why don't we put another one? And over time, right, he built up this, these series of like cake boxes that he put on top of one another and it created what was the first step pyramid. And over time, that evolved into more of a pyramidal shape formally. Um, so it started out as these rectangular box um, tomb coverings, and then they changed into the pyramids over time. But really, they only go for a few, over a thousand years or so, and then they stop making them. So even if we're talking, when we get to like the late, um, the later periods, these, pyra these pyramids will have been around for 2,000 years, and they still would have been amazing. I mean, they're still amazing now, but could you imagine like living in a society that we think of? You know, 2,000 years ago in Egypt, people were looking at pyramids, and they were 2,000 years old. 
That's nuts. Um, Egypt is, mm. uh, so they had the unified kingdom. They had state-sponsored long-distance trade, right? So the state was mighty enough to send trading missions off to Mesopotamia, uh, down to Nubia, uh, across um, and around the Mediterranean to get stuff for um, the kingdom. They also had um, bureaucracy, like I said before, so they had a state bureaucracy in place, and they had writing. The interesting thing about the Egyptians, they, they're very jingoistic and they're very xenophobic. They don't like outsiders. They make fun of people from, they call them highlanders, right, because they're in a valley. And so anyone from outside Egypt or the Egyptian valley is a highlander. And they make fun of highlanders and say they're stupid and smelly and all the normal things you say about outsiders. And, uh, but the neat thing is they borrow a lot from outsiders, but they won't just take it and use it as an outsider thing because outsider things are bad. So what they did basically was they saw, it's pretty clear, that they saw writing happening in Mesopotamia because they were trading with them. And they saw the idea. You write down what you say. Oh, okay, that makes, that's a neat idea. But we're not going to just use uh, cuneiform or uh, tablets like you guys are. We're going to invent our own writing system. And they did. Like complete, they, they got the kernel of the idea of writing but made their own Egyptian writing because Egyptian is better, even though the idea is from somewhere else. Right? Hardy har har. Okay, I'm not going to get into the Old Kingdom. Uh, we'll pick up with the Old Kingdom on Wednesday. Uh, yeah, so we'll stop there. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.